This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Ben Jealous, currently executive director of the Sierra Club, formerly president of the NAACP, and now the author of a new and truly inspiring book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. It's an inspiring book, Ben, because you remind us that the numerous flaws in both the past and present American scheme of things don't disavow the many and magnanimous proofs of America's humanity to man. We squander the worth of our inheritance if we don't know how it was accumulated, with what force of the imagination and which powers of its expression. Perhaps you can begin with a brief biography, where and when born of a white father and black mother, formal education, an early career as civil rights activist, journalist, and politician, youngest man ever to become president of the NAACP. You've led an exemplary life, Ben, and your book is the lesson of experience, not a sermon or an ideological science fiction. He was born in 1973 in Carmel, California. Back when Carmel was still in maybe its final days as an artist colony, he lived in a little 400-square-foot bungalow, rent subsidized by an heiress of of a serial fortune who was supporting creatives like my parents moving to the community. My parents are still near, nearby in Pacific Grove. I grew up there from the age of four. And my childhood, very much like my professional life, was a mix of being in the most wild parts of the outdoors from you know, the waves of uh, Asilomar Beach, the only place where surfers have ever been eaten, to the, to the mountains that define Lake Tahoe and Yosemite, the Sierras but also running the streets of West Baltimore every summer. My parents would ship me back, I guess, some ways for my cultural training to my mom's family. My father's grandfather had disowned and disinherited him. My mother's family, top to bottom, was was very welcoming of their romance, even though it was illegal in the state when they first got married in 1976. And those two realities, uh, growing up in the forests and the waves of Northern California, uh, running the streets of West Baltimore in the summer as a child and a family that had been involved in the civil rights movement from its very beginnings would define my life uh, as an organizer, as a journalist, as a professor, and as a rebuilder of great organizations like the NAACP and the Sierra Club. All right. And, and the um, talk about the Meeting on a, rena- a renaissance weekend in Monterey, California, where you find yourself sitting at a table, the man and the wife you're asking are asking where you were born, where they were born, and the wife says Petersburg, Virginia, and then you say, I think your wife's family used to own my wife's family. <laughs> how, how does that work? I mean, how does... Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll tell you a story. So it's like, you know, I'm at Renaissance Weekend. 
not the kind with like you know knights uh, and damsels in distress, but it was a confab of the Clintons and their and their network before the Clinton Global Initiative. There was Renaissance Weekend, and we've been drinking. You know, there was a cocktail gathering, and then there was a dinner with wine. And sitting next to me is a couple, and she looks like she's probably a decade and a half older than him. And I'm kind of just staring at them, trying to figure them out. They were the most fantasizing couple, and I was probably a bit more oh, reflective, given my slightly inebriated state. Rare for me, but the lack of food and the presence of too much alcohol had the best of me in the moment. And I say, where are y'all from? And he says, we're from Los Gatos. And I was like, man, I grew up here in Monterey. Los Gatos ain't far. That was an apple orchard when I was a kid. Like, where are y'all really from? So well, I'm from Minnesota and she's from Southern Virginia. And I said, where in Southern Virginia? He said, Petersburg. I said, oh, my family's from Petersburg. And in the South, a lot of pride and bloodlines, a lot of knowledge of family. It's a pretty slow place. It's, people don't move in or out of a lot of corners of the South very often, including Petersburg. And I say, what are her family names? And he says, well, her maiden name is Bland. And I said, Bland? He said, yes. I said, what's her name? He said, her name is, oh, this is my wife. You know, her name is Maggie Bland. I said, oh. I said, my grandmother's name is Mamie Bland. And I'm sitting there with my black wife, and he's sitting there with his white wife, and he's from Minnesota. And, you know, admittedly not kind of hip to sort of the intimacies of the South. And he kind of looks at me, and I kind of look at him, and to just sort of break that ice, I say, well, sir, I I don't know how to say this, brother, but I'm pretty sure your wife's family used to own my mama's family. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then the Minnesotan in him panics, and he whispers hurriedly to his wife, and they swap seats. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just say? What did I do? And then this woman, in a way, I think that octogenarians and young children feel more comfortable than most in between, leans right up about two inches from my face and just stares at me. And then all of a sudden, Lewis, she just erupts into, come here, baby, give me a hug. I don't know I have a black family. <laughs> Tell me about your family in Petersburg. I mean, take us back to Mamie Bland, who becomes Mamie Todd, is your grandmother. Talk about her. Talk about uh, going to spend time with her at, uh, during your summers when you were living in California as a child? There was only one camp in the black community. I tell my white friends, you know, I'm like, y'all, y'all have lots of summer camps, often with Native American names, sometimes fanciful. The black community, we typically have one summer camp. It's called Grandma's House. Lots of locations, but, you know, one franchise, <laughs> Grandma's House. And that was my summer. And it was great. And there were remnants of sort of the old South. You know, there was pancakes presented in a warming dish. And serrated grapefruit spoons and things that just came, frankly, from wealthier households. And a sign of times, frankly, when my black family was wealthier after the Civil War, but also the fact that we had been been house slaves. We had uh, four generations and and the women raped as such. You know, my to one artist said uh, her body was a Confederate monument. Well, you could say that about my grandmother. My black grandmother's lighter than I am. And a lot of people like to remark what a light-skinned black man I am. And that, you know, and she descended from Thomas Jefferson's grandmother. And before we figured out that fact, Lewis, I would joke that we were black in the Jeffersonian model of blackness, you know, a reference to Sally Hemings and, and their progeny. 
And then I figured out Thomas Jefferson was my cousin and well, it just wasn't a joke anymore. But my grandma was a real stalwart in the civil rights movement. She was a statewide leader in the war on poverty, arguably more on fire and poverty than she was racism. And it was her stories and her mysteries that really animated the search that became this book. She's also the woman who gives you the title. Never forget our people were always free. What does that mean? Well, you know, my grandmother's a very well-educated woman. She graduated from, from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Work in 1953. For a black woman raising her family, she and my grandfather raising my mom, in West Baltimore, first half of my mom's childhood in the public housing projects, they were very well educated. And it was also that constant pursuit of education that would eventually get them out of the housing projects, part because she went to, you know, the work that, that took her to Penn. And and yet she would say things that that confounded you. And nothing more than her repetition of this phrase, never forget our people were always free. Three of her grandparents had been born into slavery. One of them was a white man that her sister said was likely a rapist. I couldn't figure out what she was talking about. And I would confront her. And it was clear when I confronted her, she had no idea what she was talking about. But she didn't want to be contradicted. And she didn't want to be challenged about her repetition of this phrase. And then as I was trying to figure out what was going on, one day my mom came home from work and she shared a story with me. My mom had helped build build a federally funded mental health clinic in a predominantly black neighborhood. And a white guy had come in one day and he insisted he was just like Wonder Bread. He was simply white. He had no ethnicity. He had no faith. He, people didn't really come from anywhere. They'd been in Oklahoma, you know, been in California. But, you know, I don't I don't have any like ethnicity. I don't have any religion. I'm just white lady. And, and that confounded the therapist because they this particular health clinic, it's called the Village Project in Seaside, California, they put your, your culture at the center of your therapy. And so, well, how could they do that, for example, if, if this man had no – so finally one of the therapists is like, look, I'll just take him. And this man in his therapy keeps making the sound, Lewis, and the therapist is pretty sure that's a word, but the man insists it's just a sound. He says, my dad makes the same sound. My grandfather makes the same sound. I'm pretty sure their grandfathers, you know, before them made the same sound. It's just like a trademark sound the men in our family make when they're frustrated. Well, the therapist isn't buying it. So he takes it to Google and he spells it phonetically. And it turns out if you put in words from any language phonetically into Google, it'll do its best to, to, to tell you what language they're from and what they mean. It turns out it's a curse in old Irish. And he comes back to the man, the therapist, and explains to him in the next session. The thing he keeps saying is a curse in old Irish. And what that means for that man is that uh, he's Irish. <laughs> and for the rest of his therapist, he was assigned to figure out what it meant to be Irish and what that meant to him. And it really transformed this man in a lot of ways because it connected him to a place and a diaspora and traditions and music and food and all of that. And it made him feel less isolated on this big planet and uh, part of something bigger than himself. And so with that kind of kernel of an idea, I went to historians and psychologists and, and geneticists and with this fact that my mom, my, my sister, my mom, my grandmother, and according to my grandmother, her mother, her mother's mother and so forth, all said the same thing, never forget our people were always free. 
And what we realized is that it was likely being repeated down the maternal line, like that man's sound, which turned out to be an old Irish curse, was repeated down his paternal line, even after people realized that it was, you know, knew it to be words, even after they'd forgotten what those words meant, they kept making the sound apparently because of the, the way it made them feel. And something similar was going on with my grandmother. So Henry Louis Gates Jr. at Harvard University helped me get my grandmother's DNA analyzed. It was hard DNA to really connect to a particular people because it was the Asian X chromosome of a black woman. And well, 99% of the time, if a black woman in America, a descendant of slaves, has an X chromosome, it means she descends from a Native American woman. But our DNA didn't connect to any Native American mutations. So he eventually did a global search, and he figured out that my grandmother, female Kunta Kente, if you will, the first woman in her maternal line uh, in America, who had been brought here as a slave, was an Afro-Polynesian pirate. She was a, descended from a group called the Vuaka Natola, the people of the ancient canoe. They are the Polynesian founders of Madagascar, who would later trade with the East Africans and bring them over and intermarry and create a Creole people. Those people were pirates when they showed up. Many of them are pirates to today. And the slave trade from Madagascar to the U.S. was infrequent, irregular, and the result of a, of a decades, if not centuries long, pirate war in which only 17 slave ships ever come to what is now the United States, roughly half to Virginia, half to New York. 16 out of 17 of those ships were piloted by known European pirates. And well, what would a pirate woman say to her children and grandchildren born into slavery, but never forget our people were always free? And how would she say it? A call to dignity, likely a call to insurrection, and definitely a way to instill a certain pride and defiance and commitment to delivering their people back to freedom. And so my grandmother, I'm convinced, kept saying it for the same reason that my sister would say it, which was she didn't really understand what it meant or even how it could be true, but she knew how she made it feel. She knew how, how it made her feel. She knew how it made her mother feel, her grandmother feel. And so she repeated it almost as like a gift, you know, as a, as a conveyance of a certain attitude to the other women in the family. And to a one Lewis, those, those women on that branch of the family are, have been defiant for generations. I mean, even my mother, she became a name plaintiff. She volunteered to be a name plaintiff in a desegregation lawsuit to desegregate the elite all-girls public school that is still Western High School for Girls in Baltimore when she was 12. And she would desegregate that school when she was 15. And that probably was the least rebellious act <laughs> of this branch of women uh, who 201 from the pirate all the way down uh, had remained rebels against an unjust society. Well, then take that point further. Then you take it further by pointing out that the first rebellions in the United States are colonial rebellions and not slave rebellions because the early blacks who were brought here as slaves were listed as individuals from Ghana or Senegal or Nigeria. They were not simply listed as property. They, they were people. They were people and they were seen as people by their European peers and their European peers were indentured servants. They were seen to, to the extent that their European peers were seen as 
as as as human by the oligarchs, so were they. You know, that was the history of European slavery. It was enslavement of people, and everybody understood that. And the two groups kept rebelling together, and the military couldn't quite stop the rebellions, and even new laws differentiating the status of indentured servants and African slaves couldn't quite separate the groups. And eventually, they would reach for culture and kind of put a stink on black people with this crazy new theory created in the early 1700s that there were multiple human races. You know, I tend to think as a guy who's like, you know, 49% English and, you know, 20% African, 20% Irish, um, you know, I uh, I got to say, like, English people, I think, are predisposed to believing there are multiple human races because if you look at their fantasy life, like the Hobbit or whatever, you know, there's trolls and there's dwarves and there's, you know, all these different humanoids. Being that as it may, they create this very pernicious notion that there are multiple human races and suddenly – uh, enslaved Africans become enslaved Negroes. They are not listed as people. They are listed as chattel. That separates the two groups more, but again, not completely. And so then they go to what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida right now, which is just something whitewashing history, not telling the, crit, the truth, om- omitting lessons to the children. And that's what you see with Paul Revere's etching of the Boston Massacre de- depicting all of those killed as white, uh, all of those, you know, shot at as white. His fear, of course, was that the country would be less sympathetic if they knew the multiracial nature of the crowd there. And it stretches a straight line from that, you know, from that moment all the way to Ron DeSantis trying to, you know, outlaw the teaching of black history at the high school level, you know, no more black history AP courses and all of that. And along the way, Lewis, I I discovered an entire epic of history that is essentially not taught which is what the rebellions that happened in the transition, like the decade-long transition between the end of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow segregation. Well, talk about that. What, what, what did you discover? Well, this was, you know, the other mystery that my grandmother was leaving me with was why was this black woman so on fire to end poverty for everyone that – when I wanted to talk to her about racial discrimination, she would often veer off into a conversation about the universal problem of poverty in West Baltimore, where our family's from, and like in Western Maryland, the rural, you know, most rural part of the state, the Appalachian part of Maryland. And what I ran into was her grandfather. My grandmother was every bit her grandfather's granddaughter, as just like I'm every bit my grandmother's grandson. He had been born enslaved in Southern Virginia. He knew when this, when, when he walked out of slavery, he would have known two things. One was that his owner was his uncle. His owner was his father's younger brother by six years. And two, that Robert E. Lee was his cousin because his uncle was a very outspoken relative of the general who had just uh, surrendered, marking the end of the Civil War. And half a lifetime later, he was 17 when he walked out of slavery, Edward David Bland. By the time he was 35, he was the the leader of the Black Republicans in Virginia. And he led them into an alliance with a bunch of former Confederate soldiers who were led by a former Confederate general in forming a new party called the Readjusters. That former Confederate general in the future would be ripped out of the daughters of the Confederacy's telling of the Civil War 
because he was now considered to be a race traitor after teaming up with Edward David Bland, but he was already suspect when Edward, Edward David Bland approached him because he was considered to be a class traitor. The other Southern railroad barons like General William B. Mahone, many of them were former Confederate generals too. They were the wealthy men of the region, and they had gone into this great way to make m- money, if you will, in that era, kind of like tech, tech today. And they were generally suppressing populist rebellions. But General Mahone decided to not just join his workers in rebellion, but to lead them. And his theory was that as a Southern Railroad magnate, he needed the populist might that they represented. And so my grandmother's grandfather, Edward David Bland Friedman, approaches General William B. Mahone and says, we know that you guys have have fled the Democratic Party because your members are outraged by the old plantation owner's plan to shut down the free public schools. The old plantation oligarchs were feeling themselves. Reconstruction had ended with the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1876. This was now about 1880. And uh, they had said, we cannot afford the, the Civil War debt and the free public schools that these Negroes started when they ran the government. So we're going to shut them down. But they hadn't calculated how many white families benefited from them. Even today, there are almost twice as many whites in poverty as blacks, for example. There's 16 million changed whites. There's 8 million in changed blacks. And obviously, there's a whole stratum of people, strata of people above them who depend on public schools, but none more than poor folks. Bit of a barometer. So back then, similarly, there were a lot more whites depending on these schools than black folks. And... He approached them and said, you know, you guys have left the Democratic Party to demand that the state readjust the Civil War debt to keep the public schools that we created, that the black Republicans created. So why don't we join forces? And General Mahone agrees. And that alliance was especially unlikely because General Mahone, by black folks, had been had been considered for about 15 years since the the last days of the Civil War to be a war criminal. He had massacred an entire black regiment at the Battle of the Crater after they surrendered. But man, my grandmother's grandfather had been dealing with the reign of terror of the Ku Klux Klan by 1880 for about four years. And when you've been fighting the Klan for four years and losing friends, about six people would be assassinated during, like six people exactly would be assassinated during his re-election bid. They, uh, well, who better to team up with than a war criminal who shares your shares your politics? Let the Klan deal with him. So they they merge together. They build this party called the Readjusters, who name, whose name comes from that demand, readjust the civil war debt so we can all keep our public schools. And for four years, this, this coalition leads Virginia. And what do they do? They abolish the poll tax. They abolish the public whipping post. They save the free public schools. They radically expand Virginia tech, making it what it remains today, the working person's answer to the patrician University of Virginia. They create the first publicly funded black teachers college, which would become Virginia State University. And they, of course, lay the seeds for FDR's coalitions. Mahone's and Bland's young lieutenants would be FDR's old lieutenants in Virginia half a century later. And that, you know, like, stop me if anybody really ever taught you back in school that Johnny Reb and the Freedmen teamed up and took over multiple state governments. Virginia wasn't the only government the readjusters would take over. That history, I guess, was never taught because it was absolutely the most threatening 
notion to what came right after it, which was Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was was premised on this belief that blacks were savages, we were unable of self-governance, it's you know, governance, it's etc. And that nothing and, and no good, no good could come of blacks and whites teaming up together. And yet the institutions that that movement created are still with us. The public schools, the expanded Virginia Tech, the creation of Virginia State, and their example reminds us that when working people can get together across the wedge that is race and racism, great things can happen and quickly. Your point is that racism uh, clouds our vision of the poor. I mean, what, what it does is it allows the uh, whites to pose as white supremacy and blind them to the number of white people who are in dire straits. I mean, talk about mass incarceration. Mass incarceration, there's two ways to look at it, right? Everybody agrees it's a problem. Our nation is the world's largest incarcerator. We incarcerate Americans at a, you know, at a rate that's multiples higher than any other nation, certainly any other Western nation, any other major nation. And I don't think anybody believes that Americans are multiple times, say, more evil than like our European peers. But here we are. We're addicted to incarceration. The lawyers, a lot of legislators uh, share their perspective. They talk about the disproportionality of, the, of that burden on the black community. And that's real and that's true. What is also true is that there are similar, there are similar numbers of, for example, white men in prison as there are black men in prison. There are similar numbers of white families who have a loved one behind bars as there are black families. That's also true. It's also important. As an organizer, you have to know ultimately how big is the group of people you're trying to help, how many families, what percentage of the voting population do they and their friends and people who care about them represent. And you're working with a lot in both the black community and the white community because at the end of the day, we do not just have the most incarcerated black people on the planet. We also have the most incarcerated white people on the planet. Now, why is that important when you're trying to end it? Well, ultimately, this is a democracy and you've got to build legislative coalitions. The states I was most successful in, I think, might surprise people. When I was president of the NAACP, we succeeded in passing sweeping reforms in two states, the likes of which we were unable to get through the, say, the U.S. Congress when the Democrats controlled it, uh, or the state of California, which the Democrats still control. Those states were Georgia and Texas. <laughs> and we did it in Georgia and Texas by organizing the NAACP and more largely the civil rights community aligned to politicians on one side, the activist left, if you will, and the Tea Party aligned politicians on the other side, the activist right. And in states like Georgia and Texas, there were a lot of the latter and a significant amount of the former give you a lot to work with. You could generally do an end run around the moderates who in both parties were addicted to donations from prison guard lobbies, if not from private uh, incarceration m machines like the, the famous Corrections Corporation of uh, America. In, uh, in California and in the U.S. Congress, uh, there were just too few of the activists. There were too many of the moderates, and the moderates were, frankly, too financially dependent on donations from enterprises that profited off of mass incarceration. 
talk talk briefly about uh, your experience in Maine along these same lines. Down in Georgia and Texas, we had found great coalition with courageous legislators, even in Georgia, a courageous governor who was willing to do the right thing so long as we had the activist right supporting him in addition to the activist left. It's a Republican governor, Nathan Deal. It's problematic in a lot of ways, but man, on mass incarceration, he was very courageous. In Maine, you know, there's statistically not many black folks. As a, as, a, as a black guy who spent part of many of his summers in Maine with my, my father's mom and my father's uncles and my first cousins, people would often say to me, other black it's like, what is Maine like? And I'd be like, oh, it's like Georgia, but with like almost no, no black people. And, and I know it's a, it's a poor state. Uh, it's an agrarian state. It's crushing poverty in Maine. Uh, the schools had potato week until recently because for a long time, a lot of families had to harvest their potatoes in order to feed the children through the winter. And the prison there, when I visited in approximately 2011 to you know, 2012, had a thousand inmates. The main state prison had a thousand men. Ten uh, percent, roughly a hundred, were black, and half of those had joined the NAACP, along with. 140 whites and 10 folks who were Asian, Latino, Native American. In other words, the NAACP had organized 20% of a prison that was overwhelmingly white. And the warden was terrified. One of the ways in the era of mass incarceration and before, prisons are managed well, it's the same way that the colonies were managed. It's divide and conquer. You've got to keep the racial groups separated. And the notion that there was now a very large group that was multiracial in the prison of the, excuse me, in the main state prison seemed to terrify the warden. Well, it turned out there were only two civic organizations in that prison of a thousand people. There was the NAACP with its 200 members, 50 of whom were black. And there was the long timers uh, who only represented about 15% of the prison. And they only had about 30 members. And so the warden said, well, now no club can have more than 50 members. It gave the long timers a lot of room to expand. It cut the NAACP precisely to its black members. I think he suspected that the white members push came to shove would leave the NAACP to the black folks. And the inmates called, you know, they wrote letter after letter to headquarters asking for help. And I came up there, Lewis, and I sat down with the warden. I was in his office before him. I took the longer, harder route through multiple, you know, control points, doors opening and closing, all that. Sit on his couch, wait for him. He, of course, drove his car up to the back door and came in. And he was dressed in what I can only refer to as a duck hunter's tuxedo. It was um, it was tweed, all of it, three pieces, vest, uh, short pants um, that were on top of those very long LL Bean boots, the ones you kind of stare at sideways in the catalog going, who wears these things? Um, <laughs> and a very fancy tweed jacket. And his son was behind him in an identical outfit holding two very expensive shotguns. And I said to him, you know, uh, thank you uh, for making time. And he said, Mr. Jealous, I hope you'll respect that this is my birthday. I wouldn't have come in today, but your organization, sir, has, has organized... 20% of my prison, and well, I couldn't not show up. 
a riot could break out if I disrespected you, sir. So I'll be here, but I'll be here briefly uh, because I need to get on to duck hunting with my son. And I said, I understand, sir. I promise I won't take much of your time. I said, but before we get into it, sir, I just want to thank you. He said, said, for what? I said, for getting me back to Thomaston, sir. He said, you've been to Thomaston before? I said, sure. I said, you know, this just wasn't any trip. I mean, when I was a kid, we would come here. You still have the prison store? I said, yeah, I have the prison store. So yeah, when I was a kid, I brought my, I, I bought my wooden toys there. We would purchase a new belt for me for the school year. He said, we still make good toys. We still make good belts. I said, great. Well, I'll stop there after here. I said, but today, sir, I had a sacred mission. You see, my, my grandmother, my grandfather, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, and my great-uncle are all, all buried in the Thomaston Cemetery. He said, you're a Mena? I said, no, sir. I said, but, you know, generations have lived here. I'm, after this, I'll go speak at uh, Deering High School in Portland where my dad grew up. He goes, son, 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 stop. He said, all of that counts, son. You're a Mena. And then he just looks at me with his jaw drop. He goes, oh, this changes everything, son. He said, uh, what do you want, son? I said, sir, you know what I want. I want you to lift the cap clubs so the NAACP can retain its membership here. He goes, right, right. He goes, uh, tell you what, son. He said, um, you brought the media, didn't you? I said, yeah, the Washington Post is out there, multiple local news, newspapers and news stations. He said, right, right. So tell you what, we're going to go out there and we're going to tell them this. It's my birthday. You're a Mena and you're getting everything you want, son. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, this is a, a, a truly wonderful book, uh, Ben, because you oh, show the world no, no, but it because across the history, across the whole history of the United States, as colonies, eventually as a constitution, the working of the black and white together is is uh, much more common than we like to think or, or, or that we're told. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the era you grew up in, my mom grew up in of segregation, it turns out was the most unnatural era of the entire American experiment. You know, there was just never a wall built between black and white so thorough as we did after the end of slavery, after Reconstruction. Right. You know, and and we impose that reality on how we imagined the, the, the time before, but it just wasn't the case. You know, um, you know, the country arrived at the notion of segregation, you know, after a couple centuries, you know, and after two and a half centuries. And it's important uh, for us to understand that. I mean, one of the facts, Louis, that sort of shocked me was when Mahone and Bland were in the, you know, on the hustings, building this third party, taking over Virginia, and their candidate was running for governor. The candidate who ran against them, the Democrat, when Democrats were the conservative party, his whole theme was an anti-miscegenation theme. That was the animating issue of his campaign, was running against blacks and whites intermarrying. That means that there had to be enough blacks and whites intermarrying for somebody to think it was a good idea to run your entire gubernatorial campaign to center it on that issue. You know? Yeah. And they just don't teach us that. You know? They just don't teach us. Well, 
let them read your book. And I, I truly learned from this book. And, and uh, I hope that many of your listeners will turn to it to learn as well. Thank you, Ben Chellis, for speaking with us today about your new book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free. Thank you, Brother Lapham. Truly honored. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>